Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. Today's scripture reading is Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 31. Then Paul stood in front of the Arabicaeus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, and even as some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring." Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. From the moment I first read this scripture as part of the lectionary, I have been A, baffled by it, and B, taken by the phrase that we might search for God and perhaps grope for God. The image of groping for God in our search is so captivating. So today I hope that the words that the Spirit has laid upon my heart um, faithfully convey the wrestling that took place in preparation for this time of worship today. The reading this morning invites us to join the Apostle Paul on one of his famous missionary journeys. This time, Paul is in Athens, which was a first century hub for commerce and culture and philosophy. While Paul is there in Athens, he observes the Athenians, their city and their culture, and he notices how religious the people are. And from that particular observation, Paul ends up preaching one of the most significant sermons of his life. Now, as always, there are multiple layers to this text. If we were part of that first century audience, just hearing or reading the words Paul was taken to Areopagus, those words would summon within us memories of Socrates, who after daring to suggest that God could be present in all things, he was sentenced to death in that very place. 
You see, the Greeks were open to new ideas, but that openness only stretched so far. So when the Athenians brought Paul to the Areopagus, it wasn't most likely a nice little field trip to a hill on the side of town. No, it was more like they were staging an inquisition, a trial before the court of powerful opinion. The risk was high. Paul was preaching for his life. And of course, anyone who understands the gospel of Jesus Christ, anyone who believes in the power of God to to change a life, even to save a life, we might also say that while Paul was preaching for his life, he was filled with concern for the Athenians. He knew the God that they had called unnamed, and he wanted to offer hope in their searching and seeking. And so while he was preaching for his life, Paul was also preaching for their lives as well. You know, maybe the two aren't so different after all. If Paul doesn't convince the Athenians that what he's saying is true, they're going to label him a heretic and they're going to sentence him to death. But if he can convince them, if he can help them see the God who made them and who loves them and who is the one they have been searching for, then Paul might not only save their lives, but his as well. Paul is preaching for their lives, but Paul is preaching for his life, and the stakes have never been higher. When I read this scripture, I have to confess that I can't help but feel the urgency of the moment. It feels like those old anxious benches, do you know what I'm talking about, in the old country revival settings, after the preacher gave the invitation, right, that front row where folks would gather after some lively, fiery preaching, waiting to pray the sinner's prayer and receive the gift of salvation. Those were called the anxious bench. That kind of revival preaching is an American phenomenon that started in the 1800s and kept on until, well, I guess you can say it still lives on, right? You can still find those fiery preachers. They don't tend to live in cities like this, but out in rural areas. The fiery preachers still deliver the fiery sermons, you know, hellfire and brimstone. They still draw a crowd, and they still resonate with the people. And I can remember hearing a sermon or two like that. Do you? But you know, the more I read Paul's words here and I deal with my own anxiety, right, that it comes with those memories and experiences of those big tent revivals, I think that Paul might have actually gone a little easier on his crowd than some of the preachers I have heard in my life. The ones I heard in the 80s and 90s, they were well-schooled in the theology and tradition of Charles Finney, the original revivalist who insisted on the total depravity of mankind. And he worked that into every single sermon, which of course culminated in the call to conversion. 
It was a fear-based coercion that filled that anxious bench on the front row and kept the congregation singing all 12 verses of Just As I Am while the already saved checked their watches to see if they would make it to lunch in time. But Paul didn't take that approach with the Athenians With the tender heart of a pastor and with the quick mind of a missionary, well-versed in making quick connections across lines of deep difference, Paul sees the Athenians and sees in them a common pursuit. And he builds his sermon upon what they share in common. I see how extremely religious you are. It's his opening line. I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through your city and looked carefully upon the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Paul has captivated their attention with flattery. He has affirmed their quest and displayed that he sees them. He has been paying attention. What you worship, he continues, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though God needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. He continues, from one ancestor he made all the nations to inhabit the whole earth and he allotted the times for their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each of us. For in God we live and move and have our being. Drawing from the leading Jewish, pagan, and Greco-Roman philosophies of his day, Paul builds the sermon not on human flaws, though that is something we share in common. Paul does not focus on our flaws, but rather focuses on our common search For the creator God, the relentless searching and seeking after God, you see, is part of our human condition. We all long to live lives of meaning, to belong to a beloved community, to be loved just as we are. This is what Paul found in Christ, and this is what compels him to share the gospel no matter the risk. This is the tie that binds us together. Not our total depravity, not our perfect and impermeable theologies, but our most primal desire to know and to be known by God. To love and to be loved by God. You know, in many ways, I guess we could say that we have come a long way from the Pantheon. And maybe even we've come a long way from the revivalist preachers. That's a matter of opinion. 
Many of us might even say that we have already found the God that Paul proclaims to the Greeks in Athens on that day, that we have already given our lives to the God of the revivalist preachers. And so I wonder this morning as we listen to the text and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us something from it, is there anything this scripture has in store for us? In their book called The Altars Where We Worship, authors Mark Toulouse and Juan and Stacy Floyd Thomas make some stunning observations about our society and just how religious we are. Reading their book this week, I couldn't help but hear the echo of the Apostle Paul saying, I see how religious you are in every way. You see, the authors found that we as a people, as an American people, are deeply religious. Religion is important to Americans, they write in their opening lines for the book, but the religion we practice is often not the religion that we confess. The religion we practice is often not the religion we confess. According to their studies, Americans, like us, worship at many altars, altars of body, altars of business, of entertainment, of politics, of science and technology. These are the objects of our greatest affection and attention. We spend so many hours of so many days searching for value and meaning and validation in these finite arenas. And yet underneath it all, there is something more basic and more primal, more utterly human that is driving us toward all of these altars. And after a while, our endless searching at these earthly altars begins to sound again like the words of the Apostle Paul saying they would search for God and perhaps even grope for God. And I wonder, will we find God? Could it be that we are searching and groping in all the wrong places, at all the wrong altars? You know, the famous reformer Martin Luther once said that trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. Whatever then our hearts cling to, he writes, and rely upon, that properly is our God. And then in 1960, the Christian ethicist H. Richard Niebuhr quoted Luther and then added his own words saying, if this is true, that the word God means the object of human faith in life's worthwhileness, it is evident that we have many gods. It is evident that we have a religion that is polytheistic. Maybe we're more like the Greeks than we thought. 
Maybe we are more in need of a conversion than we realized. Maybe it is time to bring back the anxious bench this morning. And maybe, Christian, it's time that we sing all 12 verses of Just As I Am as the preacher stands in the middle of the altar. Maybe it's time, not because we need more people to be scared into religion, but precisely because those of us who already claim it need to remember what it means to be a Christian in a world full of lesser and more convenient altars. Maybe then, if we could experience that kind of conversion, maybe then we could turn away from the God of the body, which tells us that only youth is beautiful and that every indicator of age or illness must be treated or hidden away. Maybe then we could turn ourselves away from the God of business, which insists that making money is life's ultimate and primary concern. Maybe then we could turn ourselves away from the God of entertainment, which helps us escape the difficult realities of life together and allows us to experience our hopes and dreams by living vicariously through people we will never meet. Maybe then we could turn away from the God of politics, which draws us toward community, yes, But when taken to the extreme, when politics becomes our ultimate concern, our primary identity, it only drives a wedge between us and the neighbors we are called to love. These are just some of the altars around which our lives are oriented these days. These are just a few of the convenient substitutes that offer us meaning and security, beckoning us to come and to place in them our trust, our identity, our ultimate concern. But I would dare to venture that our affinity for these lesser altars is merely a symptom of our deepest longing for God our desire to be known and cared for during life's ups and downs. Yes, these are anxious times. And in these anxious times, we long for God to draw near, as near as the wind pressing on our cheek, as the children's book so beautifully said. In these uncertain times, we long for God to draw near. When we are struggling to find God on our particular time and in our prescribed ways, we grow so weary of crying out for God's presence and for God's help. And in those moments, we lose trust. We wonder if God is listening We wonder if God cares for us. We wonder if God cares about us. We wonder if God is even out there at all. But isn't it possible? Isn't it possible that we are just looking for God in the wrong places? Friends, if there is only one thing that you hear today, 
If there's just one small thing that sticks in your minds from this time of worship that you can carry with you out into the world, if there's anything at all that might help shore up your faith in God, may it be these few words from Paul's life-saving sermon. Here they are. Indeed, God is not far. Indeed, God is not far from each of us. Repeat it. Indeed, God is not far from each of us. And take it with you from this place out to the rest of your lives. Because, yes, there is a God who is bigger than all of our worries, who is more reliable than a youthful body. There is a God who is more secure than any savings account, who is more hopeful than any star athlete or TV star, who is more powerful than any president or governor or school board or any other elected official, there is a God who is not distant at all, who in fact is never too far, who is always closer than we think. For in this God, scripture says, we live and move and have our being. And if we believe that to be true, then our whole lives, all that we experience, all that we worry about, all that brings us joy, every moment, every hope, every dream, they all happen within God's loving embrace. So friends, let our voices join with that of Paul's as we preach with our lives and for our lives that there is a God who loves us just as we are more than we could ever know, who will see us through every time of trial and fear and pain. And this God is not unknown at all. No, this God is ultimately and intimately known. This God goes by the name of Emmanuel, God with us. So the next time temptation comes, the next time the doubts begin to creep in, beckoning us to worship at just one of our lesser idols, may we remember that they cannot save us. They will not satisfy our deepest longings. Only God can do that. And God's own name, Emmanuel, begs us to remember that God is never too far away. Always closer than we think, in fact, So when your hearts start to worry or wonder, searching for God in all the other places, rest assured that you don't have to search anymore because God is with us here, now, and forevermore. Amen.